0: Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan.
1: I'm Richard Roper.
0: We'll have comedy tonight. There's a list of the best sitcoms of all time. According to one specific magazine, I have some
1: problems with it. Oh, I left my laugh track in the car. Are we going to be okay?
0: I don't think so. First, got to tell you, Screen Time with Rowan Roper is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing, all driving your business success, because they believe today's online world is your business opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today. Rolling Stone magazine did a list of the best sitcoms of all time. And yes, there were a hundred of them online. I agree with about 30 of them.
1: Well, let me give the the fine listeners to uh, screen time the top 10. How about that? Okay. Okay. They went with The Simpsons at number one, followed by Cheers, Seinfeld, All in the Family, MASH, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Honeymooners, Parks and Recreation at number nine, and then the Larry Sanders Show at number ten. Uh, throughout this list, they are a lot of old school, a lot of honeymooners. Dick Van Dyke. Not, I'm not disparaging those shows. Uh, let me just. I want to start off by asking you this: mm-hmm. What do you think about them ranking The Simpsons number one?
0: Uh, it, well, it's fair because The Simpsons, you know, does have ten thousand episodes it's now. Yeah. The writing has never changed. Obviously, it's all voice actors, but they've stayed together through all of this. Yeah. Uh, the animation was intentionally uh, cheap and easy because they needed to turn the thing around quickly, right. which was their trick by having the animation done offshore. I, it, it is, it, it, it's certainly one of the great cultural and artistic phenomena of the last 50 years. Yes. There's no question about it. Cause it. And I say 50 years because it's been on the air for more than 30.
1: Yeah, yeah. 1989. Uh, you know, I, I'll say this. I was never the hugest fan of animated television. I, you know, growing up, I was not a cartoon kid. I, I And I know that, you know, it's part of the fabric of everybody's childhood and all that shit. But I just was never the biggest fan, even the the ones that were more uh, for the adults as well as the kids. I mean, the Flintstones were so huge. They were a primetime show. Right. Originally, basically, they were the honeymooners. We kind of knew that. It was, you know, but I... So for The Simpsons, I agree. I recognize it's part of the fabric, all kinds of different phrases and memes and... Even people that don't know the show all that well know who the characters are. And know some of the phrases I was never uh, For me it was never Appointment viewing Just because it's not My genre of preference It's also I think because of the animation As you mentioned It's a show that you admire More than you love You know I mean I know mm-hmm. some people that Like oh my god What are you talking about I'm Bart Simpson Or Lisa You know Is the conscience <laughs> well, of the show Ted Cruz and, yeah. Say
0: he was Bart Simpson yeah, exactly. And I'm like Don't you get That that's not Who you're yeah. supposed to be
1: But alright whatever But you know For me and I Again I, we know Some of the people Who have done the voice work They're brilliant artists They've yeah. all gotten You know insane Saintly wealthy, and this show's going to run forever. I get all that, but it's not the show I would have at number one.
0: I, one thing I do appreciate about it is how relevant it is to the moment of the culture and predictive. Right? You've had this whole thing about how predictive it is about Donald Trump, sure. and, yeah. and yeah, all of that. And <laughs> like you know, they, they warned us years and years and years ago that <laughs> he was going to run for president, and and there are some lines uh, that actually. Bart said that have now been borrowed back by uh, politicians. You know, like uh, the, the very famous line of Bart standing on a boat right under Lady Liberty and saying, hey, immigrants, go home. Country's full. Yeesh. And I actually heard a politician say those exact words yeah. who might have been the president of the United States. Amazing. So I don't know if he was quoting Bart, knew what he was doing or whatever. I don't know. But whatever it is, it, there are moments of the culture that you find in almost every single Simpsons episode. And it can be sometimes, you know, to that month or so that
1: you're living in. Well, and I think if you pulled uh, the nation's television critics that the Simpsons would probably win as the most, you know, as the greatest sitcom of all time. I think if you went to the fans, same kind of thing as you mentioned, it's been on forever. I think with the Rolling Stone list too, and I respect that they do this, they're, they're taking other things into consideration, like what kind of place it does have in the history of a particular show. So for, you know, for example, all in the family, which is a very funny show is always ranked way up there too, because mm-hmm. it was a revolutionary show. And then you have, you know, the classics like The Andy Griffith Show and Dick Van Dyke, which were just really situation comedies. They didn't really comment on the times they were from. They're of that time and that era, but there wasn't a lot of political commentary no. or things like that. Well, okay, so uh, if
0: you look at the arc of sitcoms, the art of the sitcom from the beginning of television, 30 Minutes that comes, which which grew out of situational comedies on the radio mm-hmm. in the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s, and then, yeah. you know, I Love Lucy became, you know, the predominant art form because the three camera setup, the way that desi arnaz lucy's husband on the show and in real life invented the three camera setup for a sitcom mm-hmm. so that you could then shoot live to camera as opposed to the way that they did on the honeymooners which was a single camera set gotcha right so there was a there was a very big difference there
1: and I, I went through this so quickly, I should mention, I love Lucy's number four on this list. So it's way high up on the Rolling Stone list.
0: It should be because it invented the format that we've seen on television for 71 years. Yeah. So that's a big, big deal. I would argue that if you take the arc of the history of the sitcom and you overlay the history of the United States of America, you see exactly why these changes happen. You see why certain shows at certain times became so important. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, they talk about the whole Archie Bunker effect and and the difference between sort of the greatest generation and their baby boomer children, and that came to the fore and all in the family. And the Jeffersons was about the integration movement of the 1970s. And, all. you know, you could some of these things are more obvious. But you also have to look at some of the less obvious things. For example, Get Smart is a show that ran concurrently with FBI, the Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. thing, right? So you had these shows that were all about, you know, whether it was Adam Twelve or FBI or all those like uh, pro law enforcement kind of shows that showed, uh, right? Everybody kind of doing the right thing. There was a moment where the culture was starting to worry about authority in the 1960s, right? right? You had the student movement, you had Kent State, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So making fun of the government became sort of a, a Subversive thing to do that mm. was only being seen in the comedy clubs.
1: Yeah, Lenny Bruce, etc. Right, George and Carlin when he finally went from being the button-down comedian to the hippie, right, uh, radical uh, commentator on society.
0: You got to remember, it was Mel Brooks and Buck Henry that invented that show Get Smart because they wanted to be contraventional, and they went on to make you know great farce and great comedy. Yep. But yep. shows like that were an answer to all the cop shows. And then you had the military shows. You had the the shows like, you know, Gomer Pyle, USMC, no mention whatsoever of the Vietnam War that was going on. Then you had Hogan's Heroes, which was a bit of a commentary on that because it was about hip, cool guys who were Americans, but they weren't in a war. They were prisoners of war. And it was successful because it wanted to play on the Daring do. Of, of American military, but also in that kind of Kelly's Heroes kind of way, yeah. which is you're kind of countercultural all at the same time. And then you end up with MASH. Which, you know, it totally rips the band-aid
1: off. Yeah. Which was set in the Korean War, what was clearly about the Vietnam War. And you you mentioned Hogan's heroes, of course, had you know no connection to reality. But of course, the Germans were the you know, the butt of every joke. The idiot, Sergeant Schultz and Colonel Klink. Right. And there was even a Nazi character that would come in that the German officers were afraid of, but he was always made to look the fool. And I'll never forget this because I, I, I might have mentioned this before, but a friend of mine, his father. Was a POW in World War Two for three years, and he loved Hogan's Heroes because I always thought it was odd that he would want to watch that, but he loved it because it, you know for him it was whatever it had nothing to do with his experiences, but maybe he just found it to be a release. Uh, I think with this list too with Rolling Stone, uh, you know you see shows like Atlanta. Shows that probably will climb up the ladder that are mm-hmm. today's time. modern, yeah. you know, commentary. And it's so it's a little bit when you see The Honeymooners, it's sort of like you're comparing Babe Ruth to Michael Jordan, you know, different eras, different types of shows. Uh, it, it's hard to argue with most of the sitcoms on this list, although apparently you are. You have a problem with some <laughs> of them. Uh, and, I, you know, there are a few where i have just like, I just never was a fan of certain shows. Or, you know, there's only so much time. It's always Sunny in Philadelphia as a show that has a huge. A uh, cult following, I guess you could say. I mean, it's been on for so long. Better than a cult following. I just never got into it. Not, it's a great cast. It seems like it's a cool premise. I right. just have never found the time. I I could go back and start watching that. It would be brand new to me.
0: Well, there isn't anything on this list that I've seen that I don't like or respect. But loving is a different situation. They don't have, like,
1: Charles in Charge on here. Thank God. Right? Or Joni loves Chachi.
0: <laughs> wow. You really hate Scott Payne, no, don't, don't you? I don't even
1: know why I mentioned those two.
0: Although he is great as... Blah, blah, blah,
1: Ooh. and Arrested Development. Might be a show that we'll talk about uh, coming up right now. Do you want to? You have your list? I do. My All list right. of top five. Let me hear your top
0: five. My top five in five to one okay. are Veep, Seinfeld, okay. Friends, Arrested Development, and Curb Your Enthusiasm.
1: See? Interesting. We got a lot of overlap there. I've got uh, number five, Arrested Development, then Seinfeld, then Modern Family, then Curb Your Enthusiasm, and then at number one, I have The Office. Now, when I put my list together, I wasn't looking at all of the factors that you might, like Rolling Stone might have looked at, like as, in terms of like what kind of, role it had, reflecting the zeitgeist or, you know, was it a pioneering yeah, show? Too much These like are the five fucking best shows that I watch <laughs> the most. The, the, re, the repeatability factor, if you said to me you can only watch five shows for yeah. the rest of your life, and, and a lot of it does have to do with do you want to watch it another time? A second time? A third time? And to yeah. me, that's why I have The Office at number one, which is which was one of those shows that really struggled even longer than Seinfeld did before becoming a hit, was never a number one hit, No, uh, but has become one of the most popular shows in the history of syndication.
0: I struggle with not putting that in my own list, and it's because I haven't seen all the seasons. I never really adopted to it, and now I'm starting to watch it and Parks and Rec, as comfort television because I watch Friends Forever as comfort television just, you know, to go to sleep at night. that's what a lot of people do. Like, you know, you sit around, you surf Netflix and all the rest of those over the tops. And then you just land on stuff that you've already been doing. But, you know, Arrested Development is like a a relatively new passion for me because my daughter had been trying to tell me about it for years. and was like, oh, dad, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. And I just didn't watch it until the last year, and I'm like, "Oh my God, how did I miss
1: this?" It's incredible, all the different layers. And I, you and I have talked about this. The fat one of the fascinating things to me is uh, two of the early pioneers on the show were Joe and Anthony Russo, who have gone on to direct, you know, the giant, the biggest of the Avengers movies. Right. And that you know, that's where they got their start, their yeah. bit, or their, at least their first, you know, huge success. Uh, And Curb Your Enthusiasm is incredible because we both have it, you know, very high on our list. And Seinfeld was so great, but it's amazing that Larry David was able to take, you know, the Larry David character who was the inspiration for George. And Mm -hmm. he was obviously the co-creator of Seinfeld. And I think in some ways, even though Jerry's name is on it, it's about Jerry Seinfeld. It's really even more Larry David's worldview than even Jerry Seinfeld's. And it's amazing that he was able to do a show that has been on for about 20 years because he skips seasons, right, from time to time and is maybe better. And And the arcs he does, and I know people say, oh, it's just improvised. It's not. You know, there's an outline no. and they go off it. But same kind of thing. There's so many callbacks and so many, you know, things you'll get if you've watched it from the start and characters who come back. In situations that you're like, how is he going to do this, and how is he going to get Lin Manuel Miranda, (laughs) arguably the nicest person in the history of show business, you know, the sweetest guy, to play like an asshole version of himself? (laughs) Because people want to do that.
0: Because Ted Danson, same thing. They see what Larry David did to himself on the show. Made himself into such a misanthrope that nobody wants to be around him, which obviously is not the case. I mean, he might be a pill. I I wouldn't doubt that, but you know, to be as, you know, (laughs) just, you know, bankrupt as he is personally on that show is hard to, it's hard to imagine. But the thing is, I cannot tell you how many friends and relatives I have that have watched that Larry David character on curb and said to themselves and then to everybody they know, I'm just like that
1: guy. Yeah. Well, there's an inner Larry David to all of us when he's behind the woman at the ice cream shop who's sampling all 33 flavors Uh, You know, all the the interactions he has when it comes to whether it's getting a ticket or being seated in what he deems to be the ugly person section of the restaurant. And then the thing is that he just says what a lot of us would probably want to say in a lot of situations, but don't dare do. So it's great stuff.
0: And it's based on the structure of stand-up comedy, which is stand-up, like a 30-minute stand-up set is exactly what Curb is in real narrative form. Yeah. Because it, it starts with a premise... It then expands the premise. It takes you in a couple different directions. It gives you some some quick, easy laughs. And then at the end, it rolls the whole thing back to the first sentence. Yep. Which is really such an amazing piece of genius. And you know, Larry David will always complained about... It's kind of stillborn career as a stand-up comic. Yeah, and he really became much better as a writer and a producer. And and I think as a performer, he is spectacular. But I think more spectacular now because he's kind of an older man. Yeah. when he was younger, you're just like you know who's this goof?
1: Yeah, he's so comfortable playing a version of himself. And my quick Larry David story is I did a charity event for him in Chicago with him. Again, you know, many years ago now, seven or eight years ago. And it was a you know, big crowd, and we had a great Q and A, and he was, you know, told amazing stories. And we left. We went out the back way, and uh, he was, you know, he's got a couple of people with him, a publicist or an assistant or whatever. And he started pacing back and forth on the carpet, like hitting the little patterns uh, back and forth. And he and he stopped about the tenth time, and he looked at me, and he goes, "I like you. We should go to dinner now." <laughs> he just decided then that he like. And I said, "Okay." And we ended up going to the dinner, and he was amazing yeah. at dinner. And, and you know, yeah, people wanted to send over bottles of wine and oh, talk sure. and everything, and he was very, very gracious with people. But he just decided at that moment. Yeah. You know, like, we had just spent two hours on stage, an hour before that, and they say, I like you. Let's go to dinner. And well, I'm like, of that's course, Larry David. I'll go to dinner with you. That, I think that's the, the, truly who that guy is. <laughs> and
0: and I, you know, talk about a mensch. He also puts, you talked about this in Seinfeld. They do this in Curb to the nth degree, yeah. where they will find stand-up comics. You know, for years, I did a radio show in Chicago. You were part of that radio show for yeah. a decade. This town has such amazing comedy DNA it. has got yeah. Second City. It's got Zanies. It's got these amazing comedy clubs and, and improv troops in which so much talent either starts here. Steve Carell is an excellent example. Sure. You can talk about all these people that came out of Second City, right? right. Well, when you watch Curb or Seinfeld, You would see these comedians that we would be interviewing on our show. Every Friday, we'd do a comedian who was coming into Chicago. And sometimes you'd never even heard of these guys. They would pop up then a couple of years later on Seinfeld and yeah. then eventually on Curb, Larry David keeps hiring these guys over and over and over again because he knows what it's like to be in those trenches. He knows yeah. what, how difficult that job is. And traveling, you know, you are talking about traveling from town to town. These guys, unlike a band in a bus, you know, most of these guys you know, just get on a plane sometimes at their own expense. and yeah. move from comedy club to comedy club to comedy club, working their material, having to deal with hecklers and drunks and all the rest of the stuff that goes on there lonely hotel days i mean more than david beckham lonely hotel yeah days. they are,
1: really are in the motels sometimes right you know it's a it, it's a grinded out living and the truth is to this day you know we're starting to see people go back to the comedy clubs but even during the heyday when there were comedy clubs in every corner if you're at the chuckle hut in kansas city or the funny bone in pittsburgh and they can say on the bio or on the intro that somebody was on curb your enthusiasm that might make the difference between 40 people and 150 people coming out to see these right. comics who are making a share of the gate a lot of the times. So it's, it's a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah. So you got to give him all the credit in the world. And that's why I put that at number one, because not only is it the funniest and most, you got a, you got a big laugh out loud in huh. every single episode. Sometimes, sometimes a, a bit will happen. <laughs> like I'm laughing about it right now. If you've never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm and you like sort of <laughs> raunchy comedy, jeez, there is one episode that is the episode that does everything for you. And if you just, just find it, you know, wherever you find it, I think it's on HBO Max now too, right? Isn't it somewhere like that on our... I don't know. We, it, just Google it and it's you'll findable. find it. It's playable. Yes. Yes. Beloved Ant is the name <sighs> of the episode. God.
1: Wow. Because it
0: does something, it tells you something that you probably should have known years and years and years and years and years ago about the word ant that you did not know.
1: Yeah, and the amazing thing is when you said there's a certain episode, I thought of about four right off the bat.
0: (laughs) All right, we'll get to the Thursday three, but first, Portillo's. They are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And of course... The legend itself, the chocolate cake. If you are hearing this right now, that means you are alive and you are near a computer. Go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff that you can get anywhere in the United States of America. If you are blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about going online. Just go to the store, go get the hot dogs, go get the Italian beef, go get the salads, the chicken. They got It's all great But the chocolate cake is the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. Am I overstating that? (laughs) I am not. I am not. You go and you find out yourself. Order it online. Go to a store. Or if you really want to try something totally unique, the cake shake. They take the cake and they smush it (laughs) into a can with the I don't know what else it is. I guess ice cream and some other stuff. And then they put it in the blender. You know how they do that? Where they take that cannish-looking cup and they put it up into the blender. Next thing you know, (laughs) it comes out. And they put a cookie on the straw. And you're like, oh, my God. This is the greatest thing that ever happened. This is a warning to diabetics. It may not be perfect for you. But for everybody else, (laughs) it is the greatest thing you could possibly have. Go to Portillo's.com. Find a location near your order online. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S, portillos.com.
1: Okay, it's time for What Not to Watch in the Thursday 3. But before we even get to that, row, I wanted to give you a few numbers from earlier this week. Now, uh, on a recent podcast, we talked a lot about A Quiet Place Part 2, which I thought was a worthy sequel to the John Krasinski vehicle. He was the writer, the director of the sequel. Brilliantly done. Emily Blunt is great. Fifty-seven million dollar opening weekend for *A Quiet Place* Part oh, Two in the that. theaters. Very nice numbers at the high end of what the estimates were, and no less a legend than William Friedkin, the director of *The Exorcist*, tweeted out that this is a classic. And John Krasinski just said, "No words, thank you, sir." I mean, it was very cool to see that generational. Tip of the cap. And it's very cool to see that that's, I mean, that's a bona fide hit there. And the first one was a big hit. We're going to get a spinoff, not a threequel, but a spinoff next year to the Quiet Place franchise. Now, Living Cr- in that universe. Living in the Quiet Place universe. Sort right. of like they do the Fear of the Walking Dead and things right. like that. Now, Cruella, which I loved, the Disney movie did 26.5 million at the box office but you got to remember it was also available on Disney Plus at a premium 30
0: bucks I 30 think.
1: bucks yeah. now they're not releasing the figures but even if a couple hundred thousand people bought it to watch with the family at home that would elevate Cruella well into the 30 million plus so i think that's a pretty good number it's not the the number they would have gotten if it was a giant wide release we're still having limited attendance in the theaters but still pretty good
0: can i ask you this question sure over the weekend i considered renting cruella yep and i thought, i don't know do i want to spend the 30 bucks cuz like in 2 weeks i'm probably not going to have to pay that cuz i already pay for the disney plus
1: yeah i don't know exactly when but that's what happens with a lot of these yeah. premium offerings it depends on if you want to see it right away i think in a lot of cases with the thirty bucks, it's more than one person watching it. It's right. somebody watching it with the family. You ha- if you have friends over, thirty bucks all of a sudden doesn't sound like that much. No. If, if if six people are watching it, that's five bucks a ticket. But, but walking so.
0: around and getting the five bucks from everybody on the couch well, is a little awkward.
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of like if you have a party, you don't charge a cover. Well, I don't know. Maybe you have in the past, but you you had some <laughs> damn top shelf liquor, my friend. So I appreciate that. Okay,
0: all right. But <laughs> is that going to be the way? That's kind of one of those break decisions that you have to make is 30 bucks. That's a big number. If it were 19 bucks, I might have considered it or 15 bucks. I might have considered it. I just wonder what that breakpoint is for them in the difference between going to the theater versus watching it at home and this does certainly seem like the kind of movie you want to
1: see on the big screen looks great on the big screen i thought it was just terrific in fact you know you could make the argument that it's better than 101 dalmatians because the 1961 animated 101 dalmatians and then i think it was 96 with Glenn Close as cruella DeVille. everybody knows that oh you know the villain in 101 Dalmatians. Who was the hero? Nobody remembers some jerky guy, I don't know, that was trying to stop her, and she wanted to make a coat out of 101 Dalmatians. Right. Spoiler alert, they never actually did that. It's a Disney movie. They will kill uh, a parental unit of Bambi, but they're not going to have you know these dog skinned alive. But have you ever heard anybody say, oh, my favorite Disney movie is 101 Dalmatians? It's not up there with the Lion King and right. all, the, all the beloved classics. And I thought they did a brilliant job. Showing us Cruella's origin story. Emma Stone was perfectly cast. Great supporting cast. Good to see these movies doing well at the box office. And in the case of *A Quiet Place* 2, it will not be available on streaming anywhere for 45 days. So it's going to be another month plus. That and that may well it, be the case for theater. Disney
0: too. I I don't know, but I'm just I I'm, my mind, and I think a lot of yeah. people who are just you know sitting on their couch and thinking, okay, what am I going to do here? that is a decision and that is a break point because I'm paying so much already to have Disney plus and Netflix and Hulu and everything else. And And then I've got cable and satellite. I'm a moron. But we all I are. figure yeah. that it's probably, <laughs> you know, somehow it works out because, you know, we do this job and that's, we, we have to see those kind things. Gotta see this
1: stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because people, you know, the monthly bill, they kind of, you, you know, you just sort of, you, you pay it, you don't think about it because it's this automatic renewal. So they'll be like, well, I can watch stuff on free, you know. For... So people say like, well, I can watch stuff for free on Netflix. It's like, well, no, no, no. You're still paying that monthly bill, but it doesn't, you don't have to wrap your mind around another fee. But when you get hit with that $30 charge, mm-hmm. I think that's still... A little tough for some folks. Now, I'll save you some money here with a movie that's coming to theaters. In uh, what not to watch uh, category here of screen time, and that is the Conjuring: The Devil Made Me Do It. Now, this mm. is the There's a whole Conjuring universe. This is the the sequel. I kind of like some of the earlier ones. Uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga play this real life American couple who attained a lot of fame back in the 70s and 80s because they would, uh, you know, they, they kind of got in the exorcism business. So there's always a lot of clips with, like, Tom Schneider interviewing them, you know, on the Tomorrow Show and... <laughs> You know listen I I personally believe in most cases or maybe even all when someone is possessed it's got to do with some sort of physical and mental illness that mm-hmm. you know and people believe it's the devil but you know you pour the holy water on them you say certain things from the bible and sometimes they And uh, maybe they you, buy it. And and they always like to play <laughs> the the videotapes and the audio tapes as if that proves it. So you'll hear some poor child in a lot of cases or even an older person howling and swearing and contorting their body, and they're like, that's proof. And I'm like, well, I still don't see the devil with the pitchfork and the horns, but they will tell you that's not how it works. Anyway, the premise is interesting for The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It. This is actually based on a true story where a guy, a young man... He stabbed his landlord 22 times, and his defense was, literally, the devil made me do it. Okay. Demonic possession. Yes. But that's only a small part of this. This movie kind of veers off into other stuff, although they very graphically depict that. Spoiler alert, he was found guilty. The defense tried to sell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jury said, you know, we're not going to buy this. But I think yeah, there's certain only doing parishes
0: like, in Louisiana you might be able to get yeah, away with it. Yeah, the devil
1: that. made me do it. You know, hey, listen, it was the first time someone tried it, a courtroom case in American history, where the defense attorney stood up and said, Your Honor, we plead not guilty by reason of demonic possession. And the judge said, what now? <laughs> what What did you say? Uh, and i think that would have been interesting if they just focused on that but then we get in we veer off into all kinds of other possession things and there's always you know the priest who's uh, defrocked and you know yeah, has yeah, fallen yeah. out of favor and he's got a bargain with the devil so stay away from that i also want to mention chasing wonders unfortunately i'd have to say what not to watch it's a it's a well intentioned coming of age story james edward who who is fantastic oh. he plays the grandfather narrating the story but the story of the young boy who is his grandson and the young boy's father is about an abusive dad, and I just found it kind of dark and depressing and kind of just spending too much time on that and not the wonders of chasing wonders. So what not to watch, chasing wonders and the conjuring, the devil made me do it. Hmm. All right. And on the Thursday three? Good stuff here. We've got Spirit Untamed. This is another theaters only release it's a dreamworks animated film about a 13 year old girl she bonds with a wild horse named spirit there have been other iterations of the spirit universe and this is a new story uh isabella merced as the 13 year old girl the voice is beautiful jake gyllenhaal julianne moore Isaac gonzalez so you've got that all-star voice cast Dreamworks I think they do a great job. Their their biggest plight in life is going up against Pixar and Disney all the time. Right. But they have, they've got some some wonderful stories and this is kind of a classic, you know, the 13-year-old girl who you know, becomes empowered and and the horses and all the animation is is beautiful. I really liked Spirit Untamed. Certainly a family film, but again, only in theaters for Spirit Untamed. Okay. Here's a Hulu documentary called Changing the Game Ro which I found to be very insightful. And a gracefully told story about three transgender athletes from three different spots in the country, all high school athletes, who are trying to compete. And it's state-to-state is how the regulations work when it comes to transgender athletes competing. And this is a very hot-button topic on talk shows. There's always this this great basically unfounded fear that all these boys are going to you know transition to girls just so they can win a state championship don't think that's really what's happening it is fascinating though we meet these three very admirable wonderful teenagers who are trans and want to compete in their gender identity which is not necessarily what their birth certificate says and it depends on the state the most famous case is mac Beggs. he's a boy who was born a girl and he wants to compete in wrestling against the boys. But according to the Texas laws, he had to compete against the girls. And you can imagine the controversy that caused. He was pretty much unbeatable. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to wrestle against the girls. He wanted to wrestle against the boys but couldn't. So the the, the documentary is called Changing the Game. That's on Hulu. I think it, you know, it, it faces a lot of tough questions head-on and tells both sides of the story. It's definitely an advocacy, as it should be. But, you know, you're mainly thinking, you know, it these these teenagers, you just your heart goes out to them because, right. you, you know, they know who they are and they just want the world to accept them for who they are. And what's wrong with that?
0: And everybody does it now in plain sight because of social media. Yeah. Whereas generations ago, when kids were struggling with this, if they could identify they were struggling with it and they had supportive parents in that struggle or in supportive community in that struggle, then it could be handled, you know, rather quietly. Nothing yeah. is quiet anymore.
1: No, and I got to say, one of the really cool things about this documentary is Mac Beggs, his mother had a lot of problems when he was young. When he was six years old, he was adopted by his grandparents who continue to, to raise him and have. Um, grandma is a deputy sheriff with the Dallas Police Department, 25-year veteran. At one point, she rattles off all the weapons she has at her house, and she basically says, like, you don't want to come here. And, and trespass, because you will be shot on site. And she talks about being a proud Republican and a staunch conservative. I mean, and you're waiting for her to say something, but she makes it very clear Do not fuck with her family. Do not mess with her (laughs) transgender grandson. And she keeps saying, like, I sometimes say she and the grandpas the same way. You know, they they fit what we think is a certain stereotype, and they love their grandson and support him 100%. And she's like, yeah, I know this is contradictory to what a lot of, you know, hardcore conservatives and Republicans say about transgender teens. And she's like, that's my grandson. And that's who he is, and I love him. And you just love that grandma for that.
0: And that's what's missing in America anyway, empathy. Yeah. Right. It, even if you have really strongly held beliefs, the empathy and the notion to be able to love somebody, even if you disagree with them or you're concerned about them, is something that we've just like, again, put aside because there are not enough characters to define love on Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's very well said. And then finally, and boy, I tell you, these three that I'm having the Thursday three are all very different offerings. This one is called Leesy's Story. It is an Apple TV Plus limited fictional series. It's based on a Stephen King novel of the same name. And uh, I didn't realize this, Roe, but this is maybe Stephen King's favorite novel. Now, in real life, in 1999, you might recall Stephen King was hit by a distracted driver. He was out for a walk and was really seriously hurt. He was hospitalized for more than a month, you know, just life-threatening injuries, finally recovered. When he came home in real life, his wife had rearranged a lot of the things in his home office, had packed some things away. And Stephen King, being Stephen King, thought, this is what my wife will do when I'm dead. You pack things away and you rearrange boxes. So he based the novel, which is now the series, Clive Owen basically plays a Stephen King doppelganger. He's a wildly successful author of horror novels and other books who is attacked. uh, And eventually, I don't want to give all the details away but is dead for much of the story. Julianne Moore plays his wife, Lisey, who does start rearranging the things in the house, but... She's also being stalked by a crazed fan. The crazed fan believes there are lots of unpublished works, and they need to be brought out there. So, and then there's a lot of supernatural stuff there because Clive Owen's character, the Stephen King doppelganger, he's got some, uh, you know, supernatural things. He's got this very dark past. Amazing performance by Clive Owen playing the author, because you usually think of him as more either the villain or the action star. Now he's playing the guy in the Afghan sweater, you know, the cable knit <laughs> sweater, who's the author, and he's great. Julianne Moore. Is one of my favorite actresses of all time. She's amazing in this. And her sisters in this limited series are played by the great Joan Allen and the great Jennifer Jason Lay. So they're just wonderful as these three sisters who have to bond together sometimes pass into sort of a supernatural world to solve things that are happening in the real world. It's called Lisey's Story, Apple TV Plus.
0: The Rowan Rupper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full service digital global agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Screen Time with the Roan Roper is produced by Tim Elanius and Renee Nelson. Our music and production director is Brian Altimer. See you next time.